I invite the rest of you to turn to Isaiah 9. As you're turning there, let me just uh, say that uh, just how thankful I am for the way that the, the wedding went uh, this week with Thomas and Carol. It was a real delight to see uh, yeah, them uh, finally be able to be uh, married and to... Um, you know, it was just such a blessing to have them here, you know, have their wedding in the service or in the church building and be able to see our, our church family come out and support them. Uh, I think, uh, as I was, I wasn't counting, but I think it was, I almost felt like a Sunday morning, not quite, uh, but a lot of people were here uh, to see, see that and many people stuck around for uh, the reception and what a, what a tremendous wedding, right? How many of you were here? No, you don't need to raise your hand. Okay. Um, um, but just to be able to uh, see them focus on Christ, keep the focus on him, and you know, that's just such a tremendous blessing. I think it should be a blessing to each one of us when we see our church people, uh, when they get married, keep the focus on Christ. And uh, so if a marriage is in the future for you, there was plenty that you could learn from that wedding. Okay, so uh, keeping a focus on Christ. I was so blessed to be able to see that uh, and be a part of that. So uh, as we turn to Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. This is a, a joy to be able to you know, do an exposition through another text in Isaiah. Um, had the privilege to work on different texts in Isaiah throughout the years, but never Isaiah 9, uh, 1 through 7, or uh, chapter 7 that we did this morning as well. So um, all week I was kind of getting ready for a wedding, and I w- when I wasn't getting ready for the wedding, I was in the book of Isaiah. Uh, so uh, it was a delight uh, to be able to learn what's in these chapters and to I figured them out even a bit more. This morning we talked about the reign of a wicked king by the name of Ahaz. If you remember what we learned this morning, we see, you would know that Ahaz was the short-sighted, self-centered, fearful, and faithless king of Judah. He found himself in quite a difficult situation, a crisis, and he did not have faith to trust in God to deliver him from Israel and Syria and uh, then also Assyria. This evening, uh, we will talk about the coming of another king. Uh, This one is King Jesus. Uh, He's the ideal ruler who changes everything. I don't think you could make a stronger contrast than between the two kings that we looked at this morning and this evening. And so the ideal king is full of faith. He's strong, and he's wonderful. Supernatural. And so, uh, what I'd like to do this evening, I'd like to look at this passage again uh, in its original context, paying close attention to the original audience of the book. And so, what I'd like to do is read through and and deal with uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 with you, and see if we can understand uh, this text together. So, let's read the whole text. I'll read it out loud. You follow along there. Isaiah 9. But there Uh, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, 
you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that as we go through this text this evening, that you will help us to understand it in its context. I pray that you would uh, let us uh, understand and appreciate more what it means for the coming of the Son. I pray, Lord, that as we work through this text, that you would guide us and that you would give us a clarity in our minds and thoughts and then help us to apply it to our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we come to these verses, Isaiah is describing the coming of a child who will change everything. He's going to change everything, not only, though, for Judah and for Israel, the northern tribes of Israel. He will do so for the world, for the entire earth. And as we go through this text, the way I like to look at this text with you, especially on a Sunday night, cold Sunday night when we're a bit tired, is to be able to focus on uh, some of the fruit of the coming of the Son. In other words, when this Son who's born comes, what accompanies him? I don't know if you've ever had the uh, opportunity or the privilege to try to secure a special speaker or a celebrity or someone famous in the hopes of helping uh, bring energy to a group. Uh, Let's imagine that you were uh, trying to get someone uh, famous for your workplace. You know, you have a grand opening or something, and so you think of some celebrity or some sports, you know, some athlete, and, and you hope and and you, you really want it to, to occur, and so you, you put the invitation out, and you're hoping you can get the star athlete, because if you can get the star athlete, other things will accompany him, other benefits, things like energy. He'll bring his resources, he'll bring his people, right? And those people will buy stuff off you or your company. Well, sometimes when we do that in the workplace or in, in some special setting, uh, we're trying to take advantage of what will accompany the star when they come. So as we look at this text tonight, Isaiah chapter 9, I want to not only look at the appearance of the Son, I want to see what he brings with him, what benefits come with the Son. And so I've, uh, the way I want to look at this text with you, I've divided it into two sections uh, uh, to, to describe the blessings that accompany the Son. First, verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, we'll learn that when the Son comes... Gloom, anguish, and contempt will be replaced by light. That's why I'd summarize verses 1 and 2. When the sun comes, gloom, anguish, and contempt will be replaced by light. These first two verses, I think to understand this part of the text, one must understand the way that the Assyrians would eventually come and wipe out northern Israel. One of the things you need to know as you're reading through this text, a lot of these verbs are in the past tense, where we think of them in the past tense as if they've already occurred. But Isaiah is describing things that are in the future that will occur, but there is 
They're settled. They're going to occur. So he keeps describing them in that past language. And so in verses 1 and 2, he's describing, as if it's already occurred, the time when the Assyrians would soon come from the north and begin a campaign of terror that would swipe down toward Judah and Jerusalem. Judah and Jerusalem are in the south. And so as you're reading verses 1 and 2, he's talking about the utter destruction that's going to come on the lands to the north. He describes them in verses 1 and 2 as the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. You might know that these are two of the, two of the ten tribes of the north, the northern tribes. They're, they're way up north by the Sea of Galilee. Okay, and so the land of Zebulun and Naphtali was within those tribes, but they would bear the brunt of most of the Assyrian initial attacks on the people. If you were to take a map, and I didn't have time to get a map this evening, you looked at, at the Assyrian Empire during this time, you would see that it would come and sweep down around from the top down into uh, Israel. And so Naphtali and Zebulon uh, would be the places that would be utterly assaulted and devastated by the initial attacks of the Assyrians. I say in my notes, they would bear the brunt of the attacks. These were the areas that were most oppressed by Syria and most influenced then by the pagan Gentiles because the population of Zebulon and Naphtali would be brutally decimated. Be very few Jews remaining in that area and the ones that would remain would be deported off. One commentator described this well. He said, the reference to Zebulon and the land of Naphtali is important because being in the north, they were to be among the first areas uh, of the land to experience the onslaught of the Assyrians. Okay, so as we're reading through verses 1 and 2, we kind of keep that in mind. Because he, uh, look, at, look at verse 1 again. But there will be no gloom for, who, who, for her who was in anguish. Well, who's that? In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon. That's her who was in anguish. And the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious. And then he, he describes this in a few other ways. The way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And uh, we'll look at those descriptions in, in just a, a short bit in uh, the end of verse 1 there. Here in these texts, uh, we, we see that Zebulon and Naphtali will be devastated. So in the words used to describe what will happen to them is they, they experience gloom, anguish, darkness. And uh, if you look at the end of verse 2, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, that could be translated, they, they dwelt in a, the land of death's shadow. If you're literally translating the Hebrew expression, the land of death's shadow. And Assyria is just utterly, will utterly destroy and defeat them. As I said, the land is described in three other ways. It's the way of the sea. We don't know where that road or that way is exactly, but it's somewhere up in the north. Um, he's then... Uh, described as, uh, or it's described as the land beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the nations or of the Gentiles. Galilee, if you look at a map again, is, is way up tucked in the very top northeastern corner of the land of Israel, the furthest extension of the land of Naphtali. And so these geographical descriptions then are of the extreme Farthest, farthest end of the northeast corner of Israel. You might think then that this would be the, the least 
likely place for God to reveal himself in glorious light. But according to Isaiah here, God specifically promises that he will send light to these places that were destroyed and devastated. And I think it is of utmost significance then as we think of the New Testament, we think of the earthly ministry of Christ, to know that when his earthly ministry started in his early 30s, he came to this region and he spent most of his time, his earthly ministry in Galilee of the nations. And so when the sun comes, gloom, anguish, and darkness will be replaced by light. I take the light in this text to be uh, like it's used in many other places in the scripture, light being the manifestation or the revelation of God himself. Because just imagine this, there was a, there was a land, there was a, a, a place up in northeast Israel that was just utterly devastated by the Assyrians. And Isaiah says from God, there's coming a time when I will bring light to this dark place that has the shadow of death all around it. And that is fulfilled, I believe, in the coming of Jesus Christ, his son. Okay, so when the sun comes, comes light, comes the presence of God. You know, as New Covenant followers, we know what the presence of God is like. We've, we've been given the Holy Spirit of God that replaces our gloom and darkness and night. But the second way I describe this, though, in the coming of the Son and what he brings is found in verses 3 through 7. So when the Son comes, secondly, you will possess immeasurable blessing and joy. And so I'd summarize uh, all of these verses. You will possess immeasurable blessing and joy. As we look at verses 3 through 7, uh, in order to deepen our understanding of these and appreciation for these verses, I want to take a quick pass through them to see what questions they answer for us about how God will certainly help Judah, Israel, and the world. And so I've got three questions I want to answer. I, at least I think the text answers. The first question is, what? So we're taking notes. You got, uh, these are little letter A, B, and C. What? what? What does God promise to do? That's verse 3. So look in your Bible, verse 3. You, I think that's in reference to God, and again, he's speaking in past tense as if this has already occurred. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. First question that Isaiah answers here is, what does God intend to do for his people? And the answer is very simple in verse 3. He will multiply them, and he will increase their joy. That's going to be what he will do. Notice it specifically says that he will multiply the nation. Uh, Many of the scholars I read this week basically suggest that uh, the nation that he has in mind here, that Isaiah has in mind, is a reunified Israel and Judah. He calls them one. So what God is going to do in the future is he will multiply the nation. He will bring Judah and Israel back, and he will give them increase. And then it says he will increase their joy, and he illustrates the joy in two ways. I think these are two really good illustrations. He said, uh, when I intervene for Israel and Judah and multiply the nation, increase their joy, they will have joy like the joy that harvesters have whenever the crop is 
fulfilled. Okay, now I'm not a farmer. I've never experienced this. Um, it doesn't seem to be overly thrilling to me. I could think of other means of joy that perhaps I could uh, you know, think of. But if you're a farmer and it's your occupation and your livelihood is on the line, I can't imagine there'd be many more days uh, that would be more joyous than when you take it all in, right? You get the entire crop and you pull it in. So when God intervenes for Judah and Israel, he will bring them joy like that, like when the harvesters get it all. And the second way he illustrates it is he said it's going to be joyous like when soldiers get to divide up all the spoil from the battle. In verse 3. Which again, I, I don't have experience in that way either. I've never utterly devastated another nation to be able to have that joy of dividing up all their stuff. But basically, he says, these are the things God is going to do here. The picture here is of, is of exuberant and complete joy. God will do this in the future for Judah and Jerusalem. Okay? That leads to a second question, and that's why I take verses 4 and 5. Why? Why will the Jewish people experience so much joy? As he just described. So let's look at verses 4 and 5. Notice in your Bible, the first word of verse 4 is the word for. And the first word of verse 5 is the word for. There are two reasons why they're going to experience this joy. Look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment uh, rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the, the, the fire. And so the reason these, there are two reasons, but the, the first reason they will experience so much joy as a people is because God will thoroughly break their yoke and oppression. I think the oppression that he's describing here is probably some sort of combination of both spiritual and physical oppression. Those things seem to go hand in hand for the Israelite people, but it most definitely at least is physical oppression. And the deliverance that God gives here will mean, as the text says, that all military hardware will be destroyed. All boots used in battle all every soldier's garment will be burned. Men and women, there is coming a day when this will ultimately be fulfilled for Israel. Think of the billions or millions of dollars that are spent on defense and warfare machines. Some of your jobs depend on it. We do this for defense. We do this for security. We do this to you know, secure peace for our land. And I think some of these things are necessary in our time and era. But someday it will no longer be necessary. Someday in the future. And uh, we say to this, hasten on Lord Jesus. Come back. Come back. Okay. But this is why. This is why they're going to experience much joy. You're going to experience all of this joy because God is going to remove the yoke and oppression from you. And it's going to be so thorough, you're going to burn all of the machines or mechanisms of warfare. That sound good? Sounds great. But then he answers in verses 6 and 7 one last question. Last question I think he answers is how. How will he do this? How will God bring them such great joy and break their oppression 
And the answer is, he will do this through the birth of a son. Let's look with me again at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, of his peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is where we know this last phrase here that this is still from Isaiah's perspective to be done and much of this is still to be done for us as well. With that last phrase, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So just like chapter 7, hope comes through the birth of a son. In this passage, the only possible explanation of the son here, as I can understand it, would would be that this must, this son, there was controversy about chapter 7, this son must be God incarnate, Jesus Christ. Okay, I want to give you just, before we, we leave here tonight, a few reasons why this must be Jesus. That's how we're going to end. First, this text, verses 6 and 7, can only be fulfilled in God incarnate because of the nature of the position of the one we're talking about here. In verse 6, it says that the entire government or rule of the nation will rest upon his shoulders. This son who's going to be born in the future, from Isaiah's perspective, will be born destined to rule. And he will take the rod off of the shoulders of the, the, the people of Judah and Israel. Remember, he's going to remove their yoke and oppression. He'll, he'll take away the rod off of their shoulders, and he will hang the whole government on his own shoulders. Take the load off their shoulders and put it on his own. So this must be God incarnate because of the nature of his government and his position. Second, it must be God incarnate because of the significance of the names that are ascribed or assigned to him here. The book of Isaiah is known uh, in many places, I think, for the significance of its names. Um, you go throughout the book and you'll find a lot of uh, people named and their names mean something. In Hebrew, this was often the case, but especially in Isaiah. So, for instance, the, the name Isaiah, do any of you know what that name means? I won't look at any of you have a son named Isaiah. God is salvation, or God saves. Okay, that's what Isaiah's name means. I don't know how many of you have named your son Uzziah, uh, but perhaps. What does Uzziah mean? God is mighty. Hezekiah, God is my strength. What I notice about the names in the book of Isaiah, though, is that all of, the, all of the important names that mean something usually relate to someone else. They're finding identity in someone else. You know, God is strength. God is salvation. God is my strength. But in this text, the names will all relate to the, the being himself, the person himself. As we think of this son, uh, he's described in a few ways. He's first given the name Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. The word wonder or wonderful is often used in this book of things God does. You could translate it something like supernatural. Not normally things that human beings can do when you use the word wonder or wonderful, the Hebrew word for it in the Old Testament. And so um, 
God is wonderful in his counsel or his advising ability. Jesus will be that. The Son will be a wonderful, supernatural counselor. He's also then described as mighty God. I say, you know, how in the world could this be anyone different than Jesus? He's mighty God. That title, that, that name would be a very strange name to give your son. I just think about that. I mean, what parent would call their child God, let alone mighty God, unless he is the God. So he's the mighty God. He's the powerful God. The power of God will be in the Son. He's third, the everlasting Father. This name, I don't think, means that it's going to be like God the Father that's born here, but uh, it's not the first person or member of the Trinity This is still about the son, but I think he's describing him from the perspective of of the kingdom that he will have. And and so sometimes in the Old Testament, a king would be named or thought of as a father by the people underneath of him. And so from that perspective, those in his kingdom would call him father, and they ascribe to him the adjective eternal. He's eternal. So although he's going to be born as a son, he's been forever and will be forever. This is God incarnate. And then he's described as the prince of peace. Speaks again of the royalty of a ruler who brings peace. And, and that leads us to another reason to think this is God incarnate. Okay, so I think that because of the nature of his position, the significance of his names. And then third, I think that because of the quality of his rule or kingdom. For the text says here that when the son comes and is born, he, his kingdom will bring peace. The word peace here is the, word, the Hebrew word shalom that some of you would know or perhaps have heard before. And I, I like how John Goldingay describes his peace. He says, he calls it here, the broader well-being in all aspects of life suggested by the words growth, joy, blessing, and fairness. Okay, so sometimes when we think of peace, we just think of like absence of war, but it's more than that. It means complete and utter well-being. Another guy described it this way. He says, it suggests a society whose every aspect is in harmony with God's purpose. Shalom is life as it was intended to be. So when this son comes... He will be a ruler who will bring life as it was intended to be, complete and utter well-being. And so this must be God incarnate because of the quality of his rule, his kingdom. And then finally, this must speak of God incarnate because of the extent of his reach. That's why I take verse 7, where we learn that there will be no geographical end to his rule or kingdom. And the, accompany, well, the accompanying well-being that comes with his rule and kingdom. There's no end. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. So I'm, I'm taking that geographically for the most part. On the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness. And then this kingdom and this peace is also described not only as having no geographical end. It also has no temporal end. From this time forth, 
and forevermore. Because when this son comes and brings his kingdom, it will bring righteousness and justice forevermore. It will extend on indefinitely. And so men and women, as I look at these texts just in full transparency, and I see these predictions of the birth of the Son, I think much of this is fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. And yet I think some of it is still to come. Uh, we won't take the time to look there, but next week in, the, in Sunday morning, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 11, and I think that's where we're going to see a good portion of this Son and what he brings as still being the future to be fulfilled during the millennial kingdom with Israel. But as we look at this, as we go into this month of Christmas, you know, we have to admit the days are flying by, right? I mean, I just can't believe it's December 9th already. The days are flying by. The, the, the calendar's moving along. To study this text in its original context, the, the days were coming. The calendar was moving for Judah and Jerusalem. Jesus would soon appear. He'd be born, Son of God. And for us, the church, the recipients of the first of the blessings of the first coming of Jesus, we await his soon return. The calendar is moving along. The rapture could occur at any moment, and at that point we will experience life, peace, and joy. Of course, we also know that much of this text and much of Isaiah 11 will be fulfilled for Israel in the future as well. And so when we think of the coming of the Son, we should think of peace, joy, hope. And I trust that God will give us the grace to believe this. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for Isaiah chapter 9. I thank you, Lord, that when the Son would be born, that he would bring many things for Judah, for Israel, and for the nations. Lord, I'm thankful for the peace that he can bring, the well-being, the absence of warfare. Lord, we live in a time and a culture, even in, in, our, in our own age, in which it's just so hard for us to fathom a society that spends no money on defense of warfare. But Lord, uh, we know that when the sun comes, the second time, that he will establish a kingdom. When he establishes a kingdom, there will be no war. There'll be no, uh, uh, the society, the life will, will be improved, will be better. And so, Lord, we look forward to that with great anticipation. And we pray that you would give us the strength to believe these things. We thank you, Lord, for this in Jesus' name. Amen.